0: Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. In the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. What sweet words of gospel comfort. Let it be to you as you desire. Her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus heard her prayers and gave her what she asked. What better news could Jesus give this Canaanite woman than the direct and immediate answer to her petitions? Except that's not exactly what happened, is it? Rather than promptly give her what she wants, like a divine vending machine in the sky, instead Jesus ignores her, rebukes her, rebuffs her, even discourages her. And that is the life of prayer, often the life of the Christian. We know what God has promised, but our experience contradicts it. He promised a land flowing with milk and honey, and yet it refused to give up its fruit. He promised a kingdom that would never end, yet the kingdom fractured in two, and both north and south ultimately were exiled. He promised a world ruled by peace and love, and yet we see all around us war and hate. He promised to come and save us, and yet here we are still waiting for rescue. At least, that's what our experience says. So we cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? This is the lament of the Christian in prayer. We trust that Jesus will do what he promised, even when it seems undone. We live in the peace of sins forgiven by his declaration, not often by experience. We live by the word, even while its fruits seem to never show. We live in the hope of what we have not yet seen. We're not praying against imaginary enemies, nor are we praying for imaginary gifts. We do pray according to the truth, according to God's word by the reality that it reveals and for the promises that it makes. And often despite what we experience in our flesh. So that, but the things that we are given to believe are often the first to be doubted. That God gives healing, that there is peace, that there is joy in sins forgiven, that there will be a resurrection. The things that we experience are the things that we count as most real Sickness, pain, sorrow, even death. But even in our own experience, we doubt their cause and deny their fundamental reality. We deny what the Bible actually says about sickness, pain, sorrow, and death. And so we hear stories like those of today's readings, and we think of them as, well, metaphorical or analogical or even just parabolic. Jacob didn't really wrestle with God's angel all night. It's a metaphor. Or, a literal demon didn't possess the Canaanite woman's daughter. It's just a demonstration of the captivity of sin. When we hear about the source and reality of our slavery and bondage, we lack the frank truth-telling of that Syrian woman from Phoenicia. We don't believe... That our slavery and bondage is in reality demonic. A lot of times we think that the symptoms of that captivity can be treated by just simple bodily means, like a diet, or with drugs, or with psychotherapy. As we'll hear soon for Amalia, the statement in the baptismal rite that we're under the devil's captivity until Christ claims us as his own, well, that just seems like Luther's exaggerated metaphor. Our little infants, really little, newly born, couldn't possibly be under the devil's sway by nature, even from our mother's wombs. But of course, if we deny the reality of our captivity, according to the flesh, then what does that do for baptism? Baptism is not actual physical spiritual rescue, an exorcism by water and the word. But then baptism just becomes another metaphor, an abstract idea, some kind of momentous life event, or even something that we can use to show the truth that we believe to God. But demon possession is real. The scriptures do not lie. Jesus doesn't tell the woman, oh, your daughter, she needs less sugar or food coloring, maybe some medication and a therapy session. Go and do this, and she'll live. She'll be saved. I'm not saying that those things might not help her daughter's body, but to be held captive under the devil is to be bound to the lies that he speaks. The devil works by speaking a false word. She's being held captive in her body, but it probably, I would say, always begins with a lie. That she came to believe. Now, we don't know her daughter's age. I think I always imagined it to be a little girl. But maybe to help us understand what's going on in the text, we should think of it a little bit more anachronistically and maybe as a little older daughter. Perhaps then it's something more like this Her daughter has come back from college, she's been filled with strange ideas contradicting God's truth. She spews lies and half-truths as if they're from Jesus, which to her mom does seem like she's captive to a demon. And she is. And it follows with all sorts of distortions to her flesh. She changes her persona with exaggerated filters on social media. And then, not satisfied with that, she mutilates her own body. Maybe she's engaged in forbidden sexual acts, forbidden by God's word. Maybe while she was away, she secretly murdered a child in her womb or helped others and encouraged them to do the same. More demon possession. Maybe she's come to think of herself as less than human or even more than human. A living, cybernetic face melded to a black glass screen. More demon possession. Or any combination of the above denial of what God has given and revealed in his holy word. It's a spiritual bondage that began with lies into her ears and probably revealed in a bodily transgression of many. So, does the mother stand by idly and say, well, that's just how kids are these days? What are you to do? Does the mother forfeit her daughter to the altar of the liar gods, be they in Madison or Hollywood or Silicon Valley? These liar gods and sacrificing children to them, that's that's not new. It's not the first time. Canaanite gods were just as demanding, often requiring blood sacrifices, forfeiting the life of children. These old gods have always demanded we give over our progeny to their lust for death and cultic sacrifices. But not for this mother. Mother. Despite all odds, despite her birth, despite the fact that, well, under Joshua, her people should have been wiped out, this woman forsakes the old gods and attaches herself to Jesus, the true God who demands not sacrifice, but gives rescue and life. So she cries out, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely demon possessed. That's the life of prayer the life of the Christian. She knows that demon possession is not some casual matter. You can't make it some or less serious by euphemistically playing word games with it, calling her daughter's possession gender fluidity or a woman's right to choose or a celebration of diversity or whatever lipstick that pig gets put on or polishing that fill in the blank. No, these sorts of demons, Jesus says, can only be cast out by the word of God and prayer. The truth revealed by God in his word must be preached, taught, and spoken into the ears of those held in the devil's deceitful sway. You don't speak your truth or just any truth. You speak God's honest truth as recorded in Holy Scripture. And this woman knows that a failure to pray to the one who gives relief A failure to hear the word that casts out demons would be to let the demons win her daughter. But it's not easy for the Canaanite woman or us to pray and to speak in such a way. To speak according to God's word, well, we risk losing family, friends, work, liberty, or even life. Even as we speak that truth in love. The demons have possessed members of every institution, and they don't take kindly to you rebuking them with Jesus' word. They'll lie, cheat, blind, scream, and murder anyone or anything that gets in the way of undermining Jesus. So, Jesus puts us through the ringer, so to speak, to refine our faith, to test and try us, so that, like the Canaanite woman, our confession, our hope, our trust, are true. And in Him alone. Jesus won't let you put your faith for rescue for yourself or for your demon possessed daughter in anyone or anything other than Him. He won't let you trust in your own resources to wage war against the world's lies, the devil's deceits, or your own flesh's lusts. Left to yourself, you confess that you'll never win and are doomed. He won't let you trust in your bloodline or lineage, revealing that even his own people rejected him over and over, and yet he loved them despite that. He won't let you trust in your own renown or identity, but rather devastates you with the confession that you are a poor, miserable sinner, or in the case of today's texts, an annoying dog nipping at his heels. This is all good. Because it directs us to Jesus for our hope and for rescue. For us and for those we love. The only way through is through the way of the cross. So he grinds you down and whittles away anything and everything that isn't faith in him. And this faith knows what gives rescue. This faith trusts that Jesus alone saves. And he saves by a word. Let it be done for you, he says to the woman, and it was done. Her daughter was healed that very hour. And so he says the same to you. You are baptized. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are my child. You will never be left behind or forsaken, not even to the demons. Instead, you are invited. You are welcome. His spirit calls you to the wedding feast. Here, have my word of forgiveness. To exercise the demons and their spells. Here, have my life that sets you free and overcomes death. Here, have my body and blood to comfort and strengthen you until the warfare is finally ended. Cry out, Lord, help me, Kyrie eleison, and he will. That's his promise for you, for the Canaanite woman, today and always. Amen.